Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is the Weekly Roundup, but we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. I hope you're all enjoying some rest and peace this holiday season. As we get ready to ring in the new year, we're going to look back on some of the biggest moments of the year and some of our favorite Weekly Roundup segments. We'll kick things off with a discussion we had in March with our good friends Lene Erickson and Al Cardenas about the speech Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave before Congress. We'll dive in right after this. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint meeting of the United States House of Representatives and Senate, making an urgent appeal for aid in the fight against the Russian invasion. Wearing his military-issue green t-shirt and speaking mostly through an interpreter, Zelensky framed the current war as a battle for democracy. Here's what he said. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. That's why today the American people are helping not just Ukraine, but Europe and the world to keep the planet alive, to keep justice in history. Zelensky thanked Biden for his commitment to the defense of Ukraine and democracy, but said this is the darkest time for Ukraine and for Europe and called on the United States to do more, to enact more sanctions, including sanctions on all politicians in the Russian Federation who stay in office and support those waging war in Ukraine. He also asked members of Congress to lean on American companies who, quote, finance the Russian military machine in Russia to pressure them to pull out. And he ended his speech calling on Biden to be the leader of the world by being a leader of peace. Zelensky's speech came after Congress approved about $13.6 billion in spending for Ukraine last week. Uh, Biden signed that bill on Tuesday. Also on Wednesday, Biden announced that the U.S. is sending an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine, but did not commit to providing direct military intervention that Zelensky has repeatedly requested, including enforcing a no-fly zone. So before we uh, kick off here, how did you both react to Zelensky's remarks? Al, do you want to lead off? Sure. Well, he's been a real gift to the free world, uh, far exceeding anybody's expectations. Who, who would have thought that a former actor, uh, comedian in some instances, would rise to the role of being a hero, a hero around the world? And And his gift has not only been to the Ukrainian people, he has been single-handedly united, uniting the European Union, giving them a new perspective on Russia, uh, rethinking what their energy needs are from Russia. He has put NATO in a new alert uh, and single-handedly, and he's made Joe Biden in the United States a leader of the world again. Uh, we Our relationship now with the European Union, our strength in NATO is different than it was before the Ukrainian conflict. And I don't think any of this would have happened were it not for Zelensky. And I think Zelensky deserves uh, uh, all the help he can get. And I can get into that later. But, but just regarding his remarks, it was great to see everyone in a bipartisan basis giving him a standing ovation uh, in the United States Congress, which spoke a lot about uh, his ability through, through his own personality, his own courage, 
to unite people around the world, even our own, you know, dysfunctional Congress. Al, I felt the same way watching it, and I got choked up by the end. I was, I, you know, I, I had some tears I had to wipe away uh, because of how masterful um, the arrangement of his address was. First speaking in Ukrainian, and then they played this video to show everyone what it's like there in Ukraine, what the, the building is getting bombed. It was very, very relatable. Um, and then obviously finishing his remarks in English, it sort of, you know, pulled everyone's attention in. So just, just the sheer sort of the, the craft of the address I thought was really great, especially considering that he, you know, wasn't, uh, there in person and wearing his t-shirt, you know, like I, I would just like, this is the, this is the way to do it, man. <laughs> right. That was, that was, you know, put up or shut up energy. Um, Lene, I have, uh, two questions for you. First, I'd love to hear your personal uh, sort of reaction to watching the address, especially since your work is, you know, focused on Congress. Um, how did it make you feel personally? And also then reading the room, um, uh, the room being, you know, our bicameral legislature, how is this being interpreted and what do you make of the sort of extraordinarily unusual uh, bipartisan moment this seems to have created on the Hill? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I was most kind of struck by in the speech was just how well he understood and spoke to his audience, which was not just the members of Congress, but also the American people. And, you know, by weaving um, I have a dream into the speech, by weaving um, references to our experiences in Pearl Harbor and 9-11, and then talking about um, terror from the skies, which is what we experienced in both of those in instances, to really try to convey what he and his people are experiencing now. I thought it was masterful and, and really, um, you know, it showed He's not just good at um, uniting people, but he's good at understanding um, someone else's perspective and speaking to them about the thing that's going to touch them. And that is so rare in our current politics in, um, you know, our, our social media world where mostly we just say the thing that's going to get the most likes and um, speak the most to us and not to other people. He really understands the art of persuasion. And, um, you know, you, you and I were texting a little bit, Ron, last week about the idea of a just war and um, the fact that younger people um, may not have ever experienced what that would feel and look like when there's so clearly a right and a wrong side. Um, and that's, I think, what he's really conjured. And, and um, it spoke to not just people um, who were paying attention and people who, like Molly McHugh, have been watching this for so, so long and, you know, teaches me everything I know about what's going on in Ukraine. But it, it, he spoke to, like, my mom. You know, I think that that is really um, a talent and a, um, you know, a human quality that even many of our politicians don't seem to have um, anymore. So uh, I was really impressed by that. I think in terms of how we've gotten, um, you know, we we couldn't agree on on transportation infrastructure, <laughs> you know, before Zelensky came along. We couldn't agree on naming post offices, like literally. So the fact that he is able to um, garner 
support, um, you know, up and down um, the halls of Congress, even, you know, even the most extreme of the both of the parties are on board um, at this moment for um, for Ukraine. I think that is really remarkable. And again, a testament to um, his ability to persuade and connect with people and explain um, the injustice of what's happening to him and his people. Yeah, I totally agree. It was, I mean, it was, I don't think I've seen a bipartisan standing ovation in quite some time. And it was really remarkable to see that after he finished. Al, Zelensky has been framing this fight as a fight for democracy itself. And I wonder how effective do you think, uh, you know, Zelensky is going to be making that case to world leaders? Well, I think you're asking the right person. In 1991, uh, when uh, Ukraine celebrated its first uh, elections after the Soviet Union debacle, uh, the military was still pretty much controlled by pro-Soviet leaders, and there was a great deal of concern about the fairness of the election. So uh, those in that temporary government in Ukraine agreed to to this electoral committee consisting of people throughout the world. I was fortunate to have been selected by George Bush, the father, to represent the United States. And I spent almost a month in Ukraine. Uh, we had you know, the staff from the Department of State. I visited Kiev, Odessa, and in between, and got to know Ukrainian people fairly well. And I can tell you, for one, that I experienced the thirst for freedom, the thirst for democracy in the Ukrainian people. There were some people, even though the pro-Western candidate won by a significant margin, quite a few people in the inner part of the country that that were concerned. And the questions were as simple as after 75 years of Soviet rule, well, what happens if I get sick? How am I going to eat? They, they wouldn't understand what life would be like without you know, without big government controlling every aspect of it. But by and large, most people in Ukraine, I mean, the clamor for freedom was so evident that many people have been surprised by the resiliency of the Ukrainian people fighting for their own country. I was not. I experienced it personally. Uh, It stayed with me through this day. And maybe because uh, being of Cuban origin and fleeing communism, I understand the thirst for freedom. Uh, but but that was an eye-opening trip for me. Uh, it was one of the most uh, significant experiences I have had about tasting others' quest for freedom. And so when Zelensky spoke those words, I understood perfectly where he was coming from. Lene, I wonder, you know, we, this, we were talking about this um, a bit last week, and I've dug into some of the polling uh, uh, that, that you were kind enough to help coordinate. Um, I wonder how you think the youths are viewing not just the conflict, but Zelensky himself. Um, and, and, you know, I, this, um, there's this idea, uh, I saw Bill Crystal tweet a couple of days ago that he, you know, unfortunately doesn't think he will be voting for a Reagan Republican in the next presidential election. It will instead be a Zelensky Democrat. What do we, think about that term, a Zelensky Democrat? What does that look like? Uh, You know, I don't know. I mean, let's start with the youth. I think we know that um, younger voters value authenticity. And, you know, it's what a lot of them saw in Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders um, is who he is, um, warts and all. And 
he has never been anything else from the time he was mayor in Vermont until, you know, the many decades he spent in Congress. Uh, he just is himself. And I think Zelensky has that same quality of authenticity that really appeals to people. Um, and and like I said, I think, um, you know, young people probably weren't thinking a ton about Ukraine until recent moments. But um, the last few weeks have made it so clear that there's a right and a wrong here. And um, you know, the conflicts that are in the memories of millennials and, and those the Gen Z who are younger um, were much more complicated in terms of right and wrong. And so I think, you know, that's that's pretty clear here. I don't know what that means for greater intervention from the U.S. I think we all want to see um, and young voters, too, want to see greater support for Zelensky. But um, whether that means that they would support, um, you know, a full on World War Three with Russia, um, with the United States getting involved is, I think, a question. But I do think that this moment has put the Republican Party in a, a bit of a pickle because, you know, we're we're talking about a party that's still led by um, a person who um, looks up to Putin and congratulates Putin and is closer with Putin than any other world leader, potentially, and is now very clearly on the wrong side. So, you know, we've now seen some of the Republicans kind of break from Trump um, and try to ally themselves with the Zelensky Democrats. The Democrats are united, obviously, in favor um, of, of Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. But it has um, created some tension, I think, in the Republican coalition. And we've seen that a little bit in the Republican primaries as well, particularly in the Senate primaries, where uh, some of the folks that are trying to court you know, Trump's endorsements are um, really unsure how to handle this in this moment where Putin is making them look so, so horrible bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into, we'll especially get into, um, you know, for example, Tucker Carlson in our next segment, when we start to, you know, look at the media impact on perception here. But before we turn to that, Al, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you think um, the the youths of America in particular are, 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 are thinking about seeing this conflict. You know, uh, Molly McHugh made a point to me that I relayed to Lene last week that they this is the first time in many people's lives that they've seen an example of a just war because we've had so many examples of, of sort of, you know, very morally dubious conflict in other parts of the world um, without getting into any of the details, right? Um, this is the first time we seem to have a very clear example of right and wrong. And um, and I also noted in that polling, Lene, that you that you sent, and, and I'm still digging through it, folks. I haven't sort of I haven't finished, but one thing that really stood out was that opposition to American intervention uh, in Ukraine was actually softest among the the youngest demographic, which was 18 to 18 to 30, I believe. That's very, very interesting. As you as you go up, uh, opposition gets harder and and higher. But it was the softest and lowest among that among that demo, uh, and I thought that was interesting. So, Al, how do you think this? Um, how and why do you think this conflict is resonating so much with younger people? That's a great question. You know, uh, is this like the '60s and '70s when it's clearly an anti-war movement? Uh, I haven't felt it, and so. And I don't think many people have felt it. I think the, I think the youth of America, uh, uh, you know, uh, believes because everything is so graphically evident. Uh, 
compared to before. Uh, they believe that this right or wrong war, they believe that this war is horrific. They believe that Ukrainians are suffering a great uh, injustice in what's going on, and they're very sympathetic to Ukraine. And I think most young people are accepting of Ukraine fighting for their rights and their freedom. The question is, how do young people feel about the United States in terms of getting involved in, in you know, the theater of world conflict? Uh, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. I believe that they're fully supportive of helping Ukrainians through this effort. They believe that Russians are very unfair. And so I think there's almost unanimity in wanting to help the Ukrainians. I don't think that was the case in the 60s and 70s where we just wanted to get out. We didn't, you know, it wasn't about Vietnam or Cambodia or anything else. We just didn't want to be anywhere. And I think most Americans didn't want to be in Afghanistan even though there's horrific stuff going on there. But for some reason, where it's Zelensky or whatever, there's a new thirst for freedom evident to us, and we're reacting in a favorable way to it. And I think the youth are too. Uh, to what extent does the youth support this? I think most youth, uh, most in the young movement, uh, believe we ought to help Ukraine. Uh, I believe most people, like older adults, believe we, we can't have boots on the ground. Uh, most Americans believe that we can't have American planes shooting down Russian planes. I'm not a big believer of the Russian nuclear threat. I don't believe that that will ever come to play. And if, and if we react in public policy to that threat, I think we're in essence abandoning supporting freedom fighting people because he can use that threat anywhere in the world that he wants. To. Uh, I, I don't frankly distinguish between sending anti-ballistic missiles to, to shoot down Russian airplanes, which we seem to favor in America, as compared to letting Polish mix fly with Ukrainian pilots. Uh, I don't really, shooting down Russian planes, I don't, I don't see the public policy difference between the two. Uh, and I, 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 I think we shouldn't send American planes, and certainly American troops of any kind, but I don't see why we should oppose uh, the Polish sending makes to be flown by Ukrainians over there. Ron, let me just add one more thing from this morning when I was having conversations with the young people on my team about about the speech. You know, um, I, as I am turning 40 today, don't get to call myself the youth anymore, but I have quite a few um, folks on my team who I would characterize that way. Um, and one of them said something really interesting this morning, which was, you know, in hearing Zelensky talk about um, the uh, what all free people want, you know, we want equality, we want freedom, we want democracy, um, we want to be able to live our lives and, and take care of our families. Um, it was both inspiring um, and also a little sad because um, my teammate Nicole said, um, you know, the way he described what we have in America, that's not really what we have right now. We don't have everyone gets along and everyone has equal rights and everyone's treated well and everyone has freedom. 
Um, and so uh, she said, you know, it's um, it's interesting to hear him describe this thing that they're seeking as the thing we have when I don't see that we have that at all right now. And so I do think there is a, a component of, you know, we're, we've all been so down about the state of the country, the state of democracy, the state of, um, you know, our politics and our polarization. And so to see um, what Zelensky sees in the United States and how he describes what we have, maybe that is, you know, inspiring to younger people to say, oh, okay, well, it, it's not perfect, but what we have here is what so many free people are seeking. And so it makes you feel like, I want to improve on that. I want I want to seek that too, rather than I want to tear it down and maybe I won't participate in politics at all. So I do feel like there's a bit of a, um, he's giving us a reflection of ourselves that is, um, you know, both, um, it, 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 you know, is better reflection than we see of ourselves um, and potentially shows us where, where we could go. That we have the tools of self-determination in our toolkit and they're pretty dusty. And we just have to pick them up and start putting them to use. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting insight. Thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying today's episode. Next up, we'll look at one of the primetime January 6th committee hearings where they tracked Donald Trump's movement throughout the day and outlined his dereliction of duty. I'm joined here by some of the original Politicology gang, my very good friends, Mike Madrid and Lucy Caldwell. Last week, the January 6th committee held another primetime hearing, this time about Trump's dereliction of duty during the attack. The committee tracked Trump's movements while rioters stormed the Capitol at his urging. Spoiler alert, he spent most of that afternoon watching Fox in his private dining room. One of the most harrowing parts was hearing the recorded testimony from a former White House security official who was unnamed. They recounted listening to radio communications with Vice President Pence's Secret Service detail while the events at the Capitol unfolded. Let's listen to that. Um, the members of the BPT tell at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, there were a lot of there was a lot of yelling, um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of very personal calls um, over the radio. So uh, it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it, but um, uh, there were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting, for, for whatever the reason was on the ground, the BPT tell thought that this was about to get very ugly. What prompted you to put it into an entry? As it states, they're running out of options, and they're getting nervous. It, it, it sounds like we're that we came very close to either service having to use legal options or or worse. Like I, I, at that point, I don't know. Is the VP compromised? Is the detail kind of like I, I don't know. Like we didn't have visibility, but it doesn't. If they're screaming and, and saying things like say goodbye to the family, like the floor needs to know this is going to on a whole other level soon. The following morning, the Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal and New York Post both ran editorials targeting Trump for his inaction during the attack. The Post's view was that Trump had proven himself unworthy of returning to the presidency, and the Journal said that he had, quote, utterly failed the test of the January 6th crisis. Now, 
The fact that Trump watched the attack on the Capitol unfold while sitting by and doing nothing to stop the violence wasn't newly revealed last week, right? The editorial boards at the Washington Journal and the New York Post have known that for 18 months now. They knew that the bogus claims of election fraud that led to the insurrection were lies. They didn't tune in on Thursday night and learn that Trump had failed in his duty to protect the Constitution. They've known that for over a year. They're recognizing a changing landscape in the Republican Party. They think it's easier and more politically expedient for them that Trump not run for president. So how are you both thinking about their move uh, away from Trump, Lucy? Well, they're moving away from Trump, but they're not moving away from the things that Trump brought us, like the open hostility toward (laughs) government and democratic norms or the penchant for authoritarianism. They're, I've said this a different way, but they're just, they're working out the kinks. They're upgrading the, they're upgrading the, the model. So it's not a good thing. Trump has too much baggage now. They'd like to overcome it, but they're not jettisoning the underpinnings. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but they're not jettisoning the underpinnings of the dumpster fire that is today's Republican party. They're just saying like, God, that guy who couldn't keep, it together and looked pretty bad on January 6th. I mean, even in the polling, you see that they're they're right. Strategists are right to push for a move away from Trump, but they don't need to have a move away from Trumpism because don't misinterpret cooling uh, in terms of, of perception of Trump, a lack of warmth, an increasing lack of warmth toward Trump from Republican voters as a cooling on the Republican Party. They're not cooling on the Republican Party. They're cooling on Trump. And that's a super important distinction that we should keep holding up. I really hate it when people say that Donald Trump is a unique threat to our country or to American democracy. My friend Joe Walsh says it all the time. And every time he says it, I say, no, Donald Trump is not a, is not the unique threat to American democracy. The Republican Party is the unique threat. To American democracy, and that's not changing. Yeah, and we shouldn't confuse the fact that these outlets have moved away from him as a sign that they're moving back to supporting democracy in any way. And we need to keep saying that. So Jennifer Rubin argues in yeah. the Washington Post the uh, that you know the Republican Party is now solidly, still solidly anti-democratic. Um, a lot of mainstream Republicans still leave open the possibility that they would have refused to certify uh, Biden's victory. The AP is reporting that uh, the authoritarian prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, who we just talked about, Mike, yeah. uh, is slated to appear at next month's CPAC conference in Dallas. Hungary is coming to CPAC. You just ruined the story. I, I'm going to oh, this oh. week, I'll find another one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there, are, there are other Republicans who are starting to emerge as possible alternatives. Uh, we're going to talk more about that in Politicology Plus. Um, since 2015, so much of the energy has been toward defeating Donald Trump, which is understandable, but the anti-democratic movement in the Republican Party is bigger than Trump, and it looks like it's going to survive even if it moves on from Trump. So- uh, there's also this story, right, that just broke yesterday, uh, Tuesday. The Washington Post is reporting the Justice Department has now investigated Donald Trump's actions as part of the criminal probe of the efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. So apparently, Mike, prosecutors who are questioning witnesses before a grand jury have recently asked about conversations with Trump, his lawyers, and others in his inner circle who attempted to substitute Trump loyalists for certified electors for some of the states Joe Biden won. The witnesses have included two top aides to Pence, 
they've been asking detailed questions about meetings Trump led in December of 2020 and January 2021, the pressure campaign on Pence to overturn the election, uh, what instructions Trump gave his lawyers and advisors about the fake electors uh, and sending electors back to the states. Um, and they also received, the Justice Department received phone records of key officials uh, and aides in the Trump administration, including Meadows, uh, back in April. Um, there's been public reporting, right, on the investigations into people within Trump's orbit, like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, uh, he of independent state legislature doctrine fame, which we will talk about much more in the weeks and months ahead. But this level of interest into Trump's actions is the newly reported piece. So I wonder how you're thinking about the impact of a formal investigation uh, into Trump and what that would have on the 2020, uh, now going to the midterms and then 2024 race. I think it's it's seismic. I think it's very significant, and I you know have said since the insurrection um, that I I do believe that this comeuppance, this reckoning would would arrive. I think a lot of people have become very impatient, and these conspiracy yeah. theories about Merrick Garland being part of you know some Trump underground or whatever nonsense that's out there. The wheels of justice, unfortunately, do move slowly, but this is the largest investigation ever undertaken by the United States government in our entire history. And it includes the president of the United States, his chief of staff, half of his circle of senior, senior advisors, probably six members of the United States Senate, and at least a dozen members of the United States House of Representatives. Oh, and probably a hundred or so fake electors. Like it's not a small yes. thing. Yeah. It's not going to get done in Twitter time. Yeah. Okay. This is going to take work <laughs> and it's got to be right. Yeah. You got to get it right. And the fact that there have been no leaks coming out of this and that this is all happening in a very methodical structured way is a testament to our justice system. And I believe to the institution that is probably going to carry us through this and see this. So what does that mean politically? A couple of things. The first Lucy, plug your ears. I think Donald. I think Donald Trump is a unique threat to the United States of America, and I'm going to tell you why. I do not believe that the erosion of our institutions is going to stop with him going away, but I do believe that Ron DeSantis would not have been trying to implement and orchestrate a coup with the crazy cast of clown characters. How's that for alliteration? Mm. Wow. Four of them. You might've just titled the episode. Yeah. Uh, to overthrow the government. I, I don't believe that I could be wrong, but I don't think that I am uh, the shamelessness, which what he brought and unleashed on this country is going to last for a generation. The Republican party is a neo-fascist movement. Now it embodies a threat to the Republic because of the authoritarian tendencies of a whole wide range of, of elected officials and party leaders. Donald Trump did not bring that in, and he is, it will last after he is gone. But the actions of him as an individual do present a unique threat, and more importantly, what we do know about cults and dictatorships is they are rarely passed on to other people, especially when it's done outside the parameters of their immediate family. The cult of personality that is Donald Trump is not going to, you're not going to have Ron DeSantis going out to some remote fields in Georgia in the rain and getting 5,000 people to show up. That's not going to happen. Okay. This is, he is a unique threat. It does not say he's the only threat. I'm using unique, not in the exclusive yeah, sense, right. but in the peculiar sense right, right. Of, of a threat to, to the Republic. Um, 
it goes a long way to then creating divisions within the Republican Party that a normal political party has, which could create room for people like us who are engaged in protecting our democratic institutions with a small D um, to actually engage people in a debate. And that is not, it has not up until this point been possible under the Trump regime. Lucy. (laughs) What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually, I actually want to see if, I actually want to see if this is actually uh, semantics, because the question is, well, is is he a unique threat or is he not a unique threat? And I what know we, my answer. Right. And what do we, <laughs> right. But the, but just because a unique threat doesn't mean he's the only threat and is it like, does it, the passing of Trump does not then signal a return to the, to respect for small D democratic institutions. No, that's, no. the Republican the, party will never right. return to what it was. Right. It cannot, it will right. not. It is not. It is something completely different than it was eight years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that in a different in a different way this week. I was thinking about so a thing that happens to me a lot in my work is that I, you know, as a person who's a former Republican who mostly in political strategy work is trying to help Democrats, I often and I'm sure you both have experienced this, am met with a lot of um skepticism by democratic yeah. operatives. Suspicion. But one yeah, suspicion. Like, yeah, I'm I'm a secret squirrel. I'm I'm about to unveil the Trump 25 plan. I'm playing the <laughs> dumbest long game ever. I'm secretly going to go back to helping Republicans. And I was thinking about all these new new entities that have sprung up over the last several years or have really really gained esteem, right? Um so a newish one would be like Turning Point USA. Um an older one, but that really caught caught fire. Speaking of Victor Orban, would be like Claremont, right? Yeah. And and the these these institutions. There's sometimes I think an idea that if you were a Republican ten years ago, you must have been a person who is like who at one time was like the way Marjorie Taylor Greene is now. And that is not uh, the tradition that I came up in, right. nor either of you. Right. And so it's okay to say. It's you can both hold in your mind, for example, among the Republican operative class or the former Republican operative class, both that you know there are things that you see now that you didn't see at the time. the The road to hell was paved in strange intentions, <laughs> but that also it is a complete dumpster fire in a way that it wasn't. And yeah. I don't get resentful of this. I just think it's an interesting thought exercise today. Like a a person, I think about this a lot with young people who's resumes come across my desk who want jobs. I think if you were, if you're a young person today who like at the, as a 17 year old is like, you know what, I want to join the Republican party. You very much probably do not have anything in common necessarily with a person who did that 20 years ago, because you are choosing as a young person to join this proto-fascist effort. It's just, it's horrible. So I think it's true that we're not going back. We're not going that, but there is a thing that we have left. There is, we're yeah. not, this is a, this is not, we're, there's, there's nothing, there is nothing to return to, but it, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. No, I, <laughs> help, is, help me out here. No, Mike no, no, and Ron. No, actually, no, Lucy, this is actually a really good point 
that you bring up, especially regarding uh, Turning Point USA, right? Well, also, it is true also that once upon a time, like the Heritage Foundation and the Claremont Institute were, were, were they were not, they were, they were nothing like what they are now. And I love your metaphor right. of like catching fire, not as in like spreading, but as in like spontaneously combusting into, you know, what, like what happened yeah. to them? Um, but TPUSA held, this is all to your point, actually held its annual uh, student action summit in Tampa Bay, uh, and hosted some of its biggest stars in the MAGA movement. Uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert told the crowd that contrary to popular belief, she's never been an escort for Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, <laughs> Donald Trump claimed that he is the most persecuted <laughs> person in American history. And Taking the cake, Congressman Matt Gates, we have a clip of this, took to the stage to talk about abortion rights protesters. Here's what he had to say. Have you watched these pro-abortion, pro-murder rallies? The people are just disgusting. Like, why is it that the women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions? Nobody wants to impregnate you if you look like a thumb. These people are odious on the inside and out. They're like 5'2", 350 pounds, and they're like, give me my abortions or I'll get up and march and protest. And I'm thinking, march? You look like you got ankles weaker than the legal reasoning behind Roe versus Wade. A few of them need to get up and march. They need to get up and march for like an hour a day, swing those arms, get the blood pumping, maybe mix in a salad. So to your point about a 17-year-old now signing up to become a part of this thing, that's exactly who he's talking to, right? This is a youth conference. It's a youth movement. And so I, Lucy, first, especially, I would like to know how you read the continued popularity of these figures within the, you know, among young people within the Republican party. It's, we all had a conversation about this the other day when we were talking about CPAC and what it used to be like and what it's like now. And I was telling you guys that the last time that I was at CPAC was in 2020 because I went to record a radio show, <laughs> not, not because I was like a willing CPAC attendee. Yeah, I was, I like, was at the CPAC. <laughs> Actually, the truth is that I went because the Daily Show, it never aired because of COVID, but the Daily Show um, wanted some people to come and they were following uh, people like Joe Walsh around and, and, uh, and having confrontations with CPAC attendees. So I got it. I had a pass to CPAC from from the daily show. But, um, but I remember I did a, I did an NPR interview and the person who was my counterpoint on radio row at CPAC was this young woman, um, who had started, I don't know, like young people against socialism or something. And I felt like so many of these young people there, bright eyed also didn't, and maybe this isn't true. Maybe I'm making excuses for them didn't quite understand what they were getting into or how they were being used, especially young women. And I think about my time as a young woman coming up in conservative politics. And look, there are some good things, there are some bad things. Young Republican operatives, traditionally, there's a lot of discipline. Yeah. It's a very, it's very, um, there's a lot of emphasis on competence and also a lot of emphasis on, we just talked about this the other day, a lot of emphasis on like um, being very presentable, right? Like being 
and Mike said this to me the other day, like you have on a sports coat if you're a guy, right? Yeah. If you're That's and, a blue blazer with gold buttons, blue blazer, blue blazer. That's the uniform, yeah. yeah, light blue button down usually right under the blue blazer. And some of that culture was okay. It can take on kind of an ugly form for young women. I mean, that was, which is that you're, you need to be, don't be, <laughs> don't be slutty, but do try to be kind of sexy. It's a little, you know, there's all this and you hear a comment like the clip you just played and you think, oh, the rest of us over here as women are enjoying, for instance, some relief in the post Me Too world where we're not looked upon with you know, the idea that we must always be at fault, right? Or, you know, we've changed the mores a little bit where we expect have a higher standard of decency for men's behavior. And then you look at this conference and you have a guy who is credibly accused of paying minors for sex and by the way, paying them over Venmo, um, who's been the subject of a, a criminal probe making jokes about how, you know, no one wants to have sex with a woman who's has a high BMI, basically. And and I I don't it's hard to know what a what who are the people that this appeals to. You know, we could go on all day about is it that they just hate political correctness or who know who knows? <laughs> but certainly I do feel terrible to think about yeah. young people, but especially young women being indoctrinated into this, being in a crowd and laughing at that. I mean, what it's yeah. it's it's pretty shocking. I never heard anything like that yeah. as a young person in these. I mean, it is it is a it is appalling. It's shocking. It's a race it's all to the of bottom. Those things. Yeah, it's 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 actually very. Um, it's it's actually the kind of culture and way of talking that enables denying of crimes of sex crimes because then women who actually have been victims are sort of treated with like. Well, no one would no one would do that to you because you're not sexy and you're not sexy enough to be a person that a man would have taken liberties with. It's it's I don't even have words because it's so appalling. Yeah, yeah it is it is all of those things and it's all 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 of the sort of superlative negative adjectives. But it's also Mikey, when we were talking about this, it's also like profoundly sort of transparently, embarrassingly performative, right? Because like I'm doing the hand gestures now with my hands, listeners can't see this, but what he was doing there, if you, if you watch the clip actually without the sound on it and you just watch his body language, he's desperately impersonating, mimicking Donald Trump with his hands. It's like he he studied, imagine, imagine like standing in front of the mirror, practicing to, to, to like, what saying this stuff, but also like what you're doing with your hands, you're trying to channel like Donald Trump energy. Yeah. You're trying to like move into that space. Yeah. And that's what the whole game is. It's all performative now, as we were talking about. And that's really the right word. It's the, the politics have become performative and you can say what you will 30 years ago, the conservative movement was an intellectual movement. Some of the greatest thinkers uh, politically, philo- philosophically were, were actively engaged in the understanding of conservatism as a as a as a way of governance. Uh, today, the George Wills of the world have been replaced by the diamond and silks. Yeah. Right. Um, you, you come out on CPAC. These are stages where Ronald Reagan, you know, yeah. st- stood and and 
And now it's like Charlie Kirk comes out and there's fireworks shows going off and lasers. And it's, it looks like a, you know, the, the, the world wrestling federation press conference where Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair are coming out and being these performative jokesters as a way of, of pure entertainment and, and, and talk uh, and degrade and dehumanize their opponents in the ring. The same way these politicians are doing that with the Democrats is it's all a big professional wrestling event. It's like, it's like not just entertainment. It's like really bad, cheap and dumbed down base entertainment to appeal to the lowest common denominator. And that's what our politics have become, um, or at least are becoming, they're degenerating into. And, and that, that creates the environment for not only the lack of, of an intellectual or rational policy framework, but for a, a cult-like following, yeah. like that's the point. The yeah. point is to be to build on your our, cult. Yeah, to build your cult is on our side. It's this team versus that team, and the more angry uh, and mean and vilifying and dehumanizing we are to the other side, the more likely it is that you will follow what we are saying and and make you be willing to engage in a lot of the absurdities that we are also engaged in as a way to build a social movement to yeah. take over society yeah. is really what right. it is. And part of, and, yeah. and, and part of that, part of that cult building is making value judgments about whether or not someone could be worthy and yeah, talking about, you know, and, and, and tying someone's worthiness to something like what they're, what their weight is or what their physical appearance is or what they eat or whether they work out every day. And in turn that whether or not they get to be a stakeholder in, in an issue like safe access to abortion or birth control is they, we will decide whether they're a stakeholder or not based on how they look. And that seems like a small thing and maybe, but it's a really, it's a really big thing because that's also, that's the same culture that is telegraphing to people that the uh, Latino teenager that you see on the street is a gang member, right? If you, if you're told by Ted Cruz that, that, that teenager just, he must be a gang member, then your interaction with him is going to be very different. And the whole community's interaction is going to be very different. That's if you're told yeah. that, that, you know, heavy set, I don't even like want to say these words, right? Like that, that heavy set young woman couldn't possibly ever experience a scenario where she might need access to certain types of healthcare, like an abortion or birth control or an IUD, whatever then you're not going to ever create interactions or foster in communities cultures of mutual respect at all. And it, it makes people second-class citizens. Like the, the Hispanic teenage boys and the fat girls are not worthy in, in the minds of, of these people. To round out the episode, we're going back to a conversation from June about the summer blockbuster Top Gun Maverick and the longstanding relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon. 
I'm joined again by Mike Madrid and the one and only, often imitated, never duplicated, Susan Del Percio. Okay, let's move to Top Gun. Over the weekend, Top Gun Maverick set the box office record for a Memorial Day weekend opening, bringing in over $160 million. I'm actually really excited to talk about this. This is, this is fascinating to me. Uh, so the film was made with, at least on the surface, an unlikely partner, which is the Defense Department, the United States Defense Department. So DOD frequently collaborates with Hollywood, uh, including lending out some very expensive military equipment. That relationship dates back nearly a century uh, when DOD collaborated on the 1927 Oscar winner Wings. The Pentagon has collaborated on movies including Black Hawk Down, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, uh, the Michael Bay Transformers franchise, and Marvel movies like Iron Man and the first Captain America film. They've also collaborated on TV cooking shows, Pitch Perfect 3, and Don't Look Up. Back when the first Top Gun film came out in 1986, uh, the producers paid $1.8 million for use of Miramar Naval Air Station. Use of Miramar Naval Air Station. And four aircraft carriers and about two dozen F-14 Tomcats, F-5 Tigers, and A-4 Skyhawk. Some of those flown by real-life Top Gun pilots, uh, according to the Washington Post. Um, I mean, without a, without the steep discount that they got from DOD, it's not likely that Top Gun would ever have been made because a single F-14 Tomcat would have cost them like $38 million and the total production budget was $15 million. But following the release of the film in May 1986, applications to become naval aviators reportedly jumped by 500%. And Time Magazine reported that the Navy even set up recruiting stands outside movie theaters where the film was playing. In 2019, the Air Force launched a recruitment campaign targeted at women that tied into the release of the Marvel film Captain Marvel, starring Brie Larson, who was an Air Force pilot turned superhero. We talked about this in our editorial meeting this week, and I was I was surprised to hear about the extent of the collaboration between the Pentagon and Hollywood. Uh, I didn't really know that was a thing, at least not not that extensively. Uh, so first of all, I'm curious about how you guys think about the collaboration, but I want to then dig into um, this. I mean, some people are calling it propaganda uh, because the DOD was so heavily involved. Um, but first of all, did you know this was a thing that has happened for a very long time? This like this very happy relationship between the DOD and Hollywood? I, I knew there was one. I didn't realize it went back to 1927, I believe I read, was the first collaboration. But um, I, w- I was very aware of it. It could be because I was doing politics in the you know late 80s, early 90s in California and was very aware of the industry and their relationship uh, with politics. But it, it doesn't come surprising. And if I go back and think about someone who saw the original Top Gun, because I'm old enough to do that. And still, I mean, everybody's seen the original Top but, Gun. I, but I right, love let me rephrase it. I saw the original Top Gun in the theaters. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You can rent a video. Rent. You don't I even do three. that. Yes. Okay. So there you have it. And I still have the aviator sunglasses for the record. I've bought several since, but I still have my originals from that those wow. Top Gun days. And that was a big bleeping deal. So besides the relationship with Hollywood in the fashion industry, Hollywood yeah. in the military, it is something that has existed. It doesn't surprise me 
Um, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me that now there's a new twist to it. Instead of mm. saying kind of back then there was a positive, yes, look, we're encouraging people. They had sign-up centers and outside of movie theaters to, to enlist in this armed services. Now that would be seen as a horrible thing to do. Um, and, and the pushback on it is, is significant. I think that's unfortunate, but I also have no problem with it. <laughs> yeah. So, Mike, you are who I really wanted to talk to about. <laughs> well, thank this. you very because, much, Ron. I appreciate no, 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 that. No, I mean, like, I appreciate that. Th- I'll just go now. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, when I read this, I was like, holy shit, I got to talk to Mike about propaganda and the military and nationalism. And wow, like the box that this opens up. Because one of the concessions when you partner with the DOD is that they get to make changes to the script. And uh, not to spoil the 35-year-old movie that we've just been talking about, Susan, but DOD rewrote the scene from the original Top Gun when Maverick's buddy Goose dies in order to remove a mid-air collision uh, because they said too many pilots were crashing. Uh, the, the Guardian reported that the Pentagon... Uh, removed a Japanese character's reference to his grandfather surviving Hiroshima in the 2014 version of Godzilla. Uh, the, Garden, the Guardian also reported that the um, production assistance agreement between DOD and Paramount included an agreement to weave in key talking points in this current uh, version of, of Top Gun Maverick. So, Mike, I am curious how you're thinking about this editorial license that the government has been granted, that the military has been granted uh, in exchange for, you know, as part of this partnership, but also what it says about American culture, about where we are now versus, as Susan said, where we were then when there were recruiting stations set up outside movie theaters. And this was, everybody was okay with it. It was a completely different sense of, of, of American uh, nationalism of of military strength of duty of you know those the culture has changed dramatically since then and i wonder how you read this um this event going back to the you know the original days of of top gun just uh, take it away i'm curious what you think about the culture change well the most important part of the story is the fact that uh tom cruise and i are the same age and we are you know, <laughs> we, 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 yeah, we both look exactly the same as we did, and we're both operating at peak performance. <laughs> so let's start with that because that's important. To set um, Can confirm having just come back from. A yeah, and you have, you have to remember. I mean, the, the time as, as a Gen Xer here, and and I'm I'm not gonna you know speak for Susan, but I'll speak a little bit for her. We grew up at a time you know when the movies we watched were like Red Dawn. Right and and Rocky beating up Ivan Drago <laughs> in the ring, right? Like th- this was normal for us. This was part of how we were we were politicized, and it was it's pop- propaganda, and it wasn't subtle. The more direct it was, the more we ate it up, right? The red threat, and it was it was a, it was a sign of the times of of the Cold War. It just it really was um, because of the fears that we all had every day of you know potentially being. Uh, you know, annihilated um, by a nuclear bomb by by the the Russians, and 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 so that fear was something that Hollywood spoke to. There's no question this is jingoism. There's no question this is propaganda. There's no question this is part of what 
militaries do. Um, and so it, it, from that respect, I think it makes a, a whole heck of a lot of sense. I, and again, I'm fully acknowledged because I you know, grew up at a different time, I don't have a problem with it either. In fact, in many ways, I think it's kind of smart money, right? If you need to build up, yeah, I know, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of audience reaction from that one because of the, the, oh, yeah. the time and the culture may have changed and be different. But it, if you're not paying attention to what other regimes in this world are doing literally at this moment, I'm sorry, military might and military power matters when you, and maybe this is just because we came out of a, of a war zone. <laughs> this stuff matters. Okay. Yeah. This stuff matters. And you have to be able to um, talk about your country and its strength in a way that is not just an academic exercise. It's literally about posturing in the information age. Top Gun, when it came out, Hollywood was the way these this information was disseminated. It wasn't just a blockbuster generational movie in its time. It commanded a, a global audience. It was telling the whole world, this is who the United States of America is. If you, if you want to say that's horrible and we're imperialist and we're jingoist and we're whatever, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And if you don't think that that is part of what countries do to position geopolitically, I, I don't know what to tell you, but, but you're going to need to sit down because we're going to have to have a long talk. And this is going to be really unsettling on the way the world actually works, because that is the way the world actually works. And it is an important part of yeah, us broadcasting who we are. And I'm not saying Hollywood has an obligation to do that. But what I'm saying is that if the United States military sees advantage because it has hundreds of millions of dollars of assets that you can't build or fake for a set and is willing to lease that out for the right imagery, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I wish they, I wish they would have extracted a little bit more for my taxpayer dollars. Probably, probably the <laughs> I'm with you there. That's the, the problem I have is that we only paid a million bucks. Like, a little my bit gosh, more. you know, let's all, let's start a GoFundMe account. Let's have a politicology, you know, plus party on some aircraft carrier somewhere with everybody kicking in a couple of bucks. Because I, I, if you can, if you're going to make 160 million dollars on the first weekend with this movie, you know, charge a little bit more. That's the problem. That's the only problem I have with this. The other thing that this made me think of, and and I, where I, what I wanted to get at is, it reminded me of of uh, you know Molly's now you know I don't know ten times reprised pincer of isolationism, which I mm -hmm. mentioned multiple times, which is this, this is this you know this um, uh, this growing, increasing, advancing trend on both uh, both far ends of I'm using this one dimensional political spectrum as if it's actually useful, but the far right and the far left increasingly encroaching into the middle, right? of not wanting to be engaged in the rest of the world and not being interested in American interventionism or even American, anything that smacks of American military strength or might or, or, or demonstrating that on the global stage. And that, to me, seems like the backdrop for this, this the, the cultural backdrop for what the Pentagon is now. They obviously recognize this, right? Uh, trying perhaps to correct by by rebuilding or 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 restoring this sense that America can be a good uh, good actor on the world stage and trying to revive a a pride in 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 that military strength in in some way. So 
that's what this made me think of. So what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, look, I think I, uh, I don't believe, and look, I, I, I believe that America is a, is a good, profoundly good country. I think we are a good people. I think we have amongst perhaps the most aspirational of, of, of founding principles and ideas. I think we are also a country made up of human beings, which makes us fallible, <laughs> like any human institution. But to focus only on what is wrong is, is just as dangerous as focusing, is, is, as being blind to what is wrong with you, right? That's, it's why when I see kind of the trumpet Mount Rushmore and the fireworks and the screaming eagles coming down and the, the humongous waving flags, and it's just, it's nothing but this syrupy, jingoistic crap with nothing underneath it. It's like eating so much icing off of the cake that you get sick and throw up before you actually get down to the actual cake, right? That, that is that is dangerous. America right or wrong, you know, if you don't, you know, love it or leave it. That, that kind of mentality is what, you know, uh, uh, people who have uh, uh, addictions use to deny what is wrong with them, right? There's no perfect nation. But I think that if you look at our founding, and if you look at the documents that which we say we uh, of who we say we are, we are still an inspiration to the world. I wish we were more so to ourselves. And I say that from that conversation too. We had on a train ride from Lviv to Kiev through the bloodlands, where 14 million people were killed between you know Germany and 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 Russia. In a 12, 14-year period, millions of people are slaughtered. And Molly McHugh says to us, words I will never forget, the Ukrainian people believe that we are who we say we are. Our mythology is important. We have a unique place in the world as Americans. And I think that the more that we live up to that, the more we inspire the people of the world, especially people that we met in Ukraine who are willing to die for what we have. And they're not only saying that literally over a cup of coffee in a cafe in the middle of air raid sirens going off, they're talking about their family members who are dying in the Donbass, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away. So, so the, we are important. The United States of America is important to the world, to world history. But we are also very deeply flawed. And one of our biggest problems is our unwillingness to talk about that, to talk about our problems and talk about our, our sins and our misgivings in order to make us a more perfect union. We're not the perfect union. We're trying to become a more perfect union. And that is always the struggle of America is to continually get better and improve. And you can't do that when you reject criticism. And so I don't think there's anything wrong. In fact, I think it's honorable to be talking about it, even in sometimes jingoistic-y, syrupy, sweet ways, the mythology of America, because myth is very important. And if that happens with cool fighter plane scenes and these big ships and stuff, I really don't have a problem with that because we have done a lot of, of really bad things, 
But I really believe we have done far, far, far more good things as a country, even with those weapons of war. I believe that to my core. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.